Welcome back to the program. No matter how many times we hear the stories of pedophile priests in the Catholic Church, it's hard to grasp that such things could go on, and that they could go on for so long, and that so many could be involved as both perpetrators and did the cover-up. Perhaps it's that people didn't want to believe, like the story told by a victim in the new movie Spotlight of the mother who, even after the son tells of his abuse, still puts out cookies for the priest when he visits. In business or in any institution, it's hard to change culture. As Peter Drucker said about business, culture eats strategy for lunch. What we've seen in the Catholic Church is a layering of cultures, the culture of perpetrators and the culture of secrecy of those that covered it up and the broader culture of the time that encouraged a respect for authority. Together, they were a toxic combination. As they were in the Horace Mann School in New York back in the 60s and 70s, the story of Horace Mann was revealed really for the first time by my guest playwright and journalist Amos Camille in a scorching New York Times magazine story in June of 2012. Now he tells the full measure of the story in his new book, Great is the Truth, Secrecy, Scandal, and the Quest for Justice at the Horace Mann School. Amos, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. What was it that drew you to this story initially that uh, really resulted in that a New York Times Magazine story back in 2012? You know, in a funny way, I avoided writing the story for about 20 years. Um, I, um, I went to Horace Mann. I was a middle-class kid. I got in on a baseball scholarship. Uh, Horace Mann, for those of your listeners who don't know, uh, really sort of caters to the 1% of the 1% in, in the New York area. Uh, it plays on a very big stage, and uh, I was lucky enough to quote-unquote, get the keys to the kingdom. And um, we had always talked about teachers being strange. Uh, and you talk about it in the way that a 15-year-old, that you know, avoid this one, that one's a little weird, don't get into the car with that one. But when I was 27, uh, a couple of my buddies, five of us, uh, went camping uh, in the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, and uh, one of them one night told us that he had been abused by one of the teachers. And uh, we all went around the campfire telling stories about uh, strange stories. And it uh, turns out that the three, three of the five around that campfire had been abused by different teachers. Uh, I was not one of the victims, but uh, three of my five friends uh, ended up uh, coming forward, not that night. So, so we all went on with our lives. And about 20 years later, uh, the Sandusky uh, scandal hit at Penn State. And since my friend, I call him Andrew in the book, uh, had talked about uh, being abused by a football coach. I called him and I said, uh, how are you doing? And he said, I'm not doing too well. I, ho- I wish somebody would write about this. And that uh, is what I wrote. I, I ultimately became uh, the cover story of the Times Magazine in 2012. Once that story came out, talk a little bit about the reaction that it engendered, particularly among those that had a connection to Horace Mann. Yeah, it was a bit of a tsunami. Uh, in the piece, I talked about three teachers at Horace Mann uh, who were abusers, and what happened next was what surprised everybody. Uh, the, they're both on the New York Times comment section, which got over a thousand comments in a couple of hours. They had to shut down the section, and on a couple of independent Facebook pages, uh, people were coming forward. Uh, and we are now up to credibly 22 different predators, not victims, predators at Horace Mann between 1962 and the late 90s. Did you or any of the kids that were there at the time have any idea of the scope of this? While they were, as you talked about at the outset, these rumors and, and a sense of what was going on, the scope of it. Talk about that. 
No, I, I don't think anybody had any idea. I thought I was writing originally about uh, a couple of my friends that this may or may that this you know that this happened to. I expected you know some a couple more people to come forward, but nothing on this magnitude. Right now, it's the largest uh, sort of sexual abuse scandal in American educational history uh, to date. Um, sadly, I think other people are going to come forward. Uh, other scandals will come forth, uh, but no, no, I, and that was by design. I think uh, the, the predators and you know the administrators in the school, they they work. They want to make you feel like you're the only victim, you know. So let's keep this between us, and nobody needs to know. And many of the victims, many in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, now finally came forward. They had been laboring for decades under the impression that they were the only one. What was it in the culture of that school that fostered this? Right. I think the, the, co- the culture, I mean, wh- where sexual abuse thrives is when a kid has something to lose, right? If he can be kept out of the community, whether it be the Orthodox community or the Catholic community. At Horace Man, what a kid had to lose was access to uh, elite private education, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. And um, so it uh, it was sort of implied and sometimes openly stated that if you talked uh, you will lose this. And sometimes when kids told their parents, they told them to forget about it. This is your career. Uh, and, um, you know, administrators, nobody really had a lot of incentive to to talk. And certainly, you know, if a kid tried, and we know that in the Horace Mann case, kids did try to talk and administrators and, and teachers did, did speak up, but it was always shut down. One thing that seems profoundly different than the, some of the Catholic Church scandals is because of the nature of these kids and the nature of their parents. You would think that the response would be different. Yeah, you you would think that. I think um, in some ways, though, Horace Mann was and is like a sort of a, it's a prep school. It's like a mini college. And so one of the things that the parents were paying for, and you know, today they pay upwards of uh, $40,000 a year to send their kids to HM, they um, they pay for this sort of mini college experience where you know each classroom is a fiefdom, and your teacher is not only a you know world class musician, but they can actually take you around Europe uh, to show you the places where this music was originally created, and so it's it's part of an incredible education that you get. You know, sadly, uh, it's also a place where things like this can flourish. So a lot of the parents were paying for this to go away. They also thought, uh, you know, it could never happen here. The sad thing is, and this is really what I want to drive home for your listeners, is that this happens, I wrote about it at the highest levels of society economically, but it happens at every level, and it doesn't really have a race or a religion or a a socioeconomic cutoff point. It happens in jails and prisons, it happens in Boy Scouts, and it happens, sadly, um, uh, everywhere. Talk a little bit about the cover-up and the way that progressed. In uh, in the 60s, and so they, they, the school and administrators uh, acted surprised when my article came out, and I, I was calling them and were shocked, and uh, this is unbelievable, and you know, we're hearing allegations are coming forward. The truth is they've known since the late 60s. We have credible uh, evidence at this point. In my uh, original piece in the Times, um, I had uncovered a letter um, in the early 90s about one of the most prolific uh, sexual abusers, man by the name of Johannes Samari. And uh, a, a student by the name of Ben Balter wrote to the then headmaster that uh, this was going on. And um, 
that student then uh, ultimately ended up committing suicide. Um, and the sad thing was after Balter um, uh, had written that letter, Samari went, and it was suppressed, Samari went on to abuse others. And it wasn't the first time that uh, Samari had been named and others had been named. So one of the things that the school uh, did uh, in covering it up, it was actually created more victims, right? Because if, uh, if something happens to you in, in 1975 and the guy's still teaching in the late 90s, there's a lot of victims that could have been uh, saved. And, of course, once the cover-up begins, it just escalates and really makes everyone, that makes the perpetrators feel safe. Yeah, in a sense, that's right. I mean, you don't have 22 perpetrators uh, on one campus. Uh, okay, it was over decades, but uh, uh, if they don't feel uh, in some ways covered um, by the school. Talk about that, that it did go on for decades, as you say, that, that this wasn't an isolated incident or an isolated period of time, that there was something inherent in the institution that really fostered and encouraged this. Uh, yeah, I, again, it's it's really hard to pin down. You know, the school has not been forthcoming in terms of sharing what it knows and who knew what when in terms of the um, the uh, the board. So it's very hard to pin down. We do know that some of the teachers were talking to each other. There's some horrible stories about uh, a kid being abused by two teachers, and the next morning, you know, another teacher saying, "Oh, I heard you had a good time at the headmaster's uh, house last night," and so and and several stories like that uh, that have, have come forth. But what what happened and how it uh, why uh, it became uh, other schools around Horace Mann at the time knew that it was going on there. We in our course of our interviewing we we came across administrators from other schools in in the New York area that said, yeah, we knew this was going on. And um, listen, there, there's we have an epidemic in our country. If one out of four girls and one out of six boys will be sexually assaulted between before they turn 18. Right, so it literally happens everywhere, but it happened at Horace Mann in a, in a very concentrated way, and I, 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 as you suggest, it's because uh, uh, they, they had some sort of cover, and also it, it brings up another issue as well, which is in New York State, uh, the statute of limitations on sexual abuse, you have until the age of 23 to speak, and we know that most people, if they speak at all, don't come out until their 40s or 50s. And so it gives the school uh, the the uh, basically the playbook to cover it up, right? Wait, uh, pretend nothing happened, tell the kid to go away, and then by the time they're 23, okay, it's too late, you can't get sued. And so that's something that needs to change in New York. It's among the worst uh, statute of limitations in the country. In many ways, it was worse than, than some of the things that went on in the Catholic Church, particularly with respect to the cover-up, because there was no place in Brazil or somewhere else to send these these people, as they uh, did with some of the it, priests. Well, in some ways, you know, they call the, that that uh, tradition is called pass the trash, right? So they would actually get rid of some teachers and they would send them on to other schools uh, where, you know, it may or may not happen again. But um, that, that was uh, the, the policy. Right within the um, within the church, they got recycled uh, within that uh, uh, within that system. But um, I think for a long time, uh, Horace Mann was getting away with it, and uh, people were getting away with it, and victims just went away. There's a string of suicides, uh, uh, many related to this. Um, so 
uh, it was a, it was a place, and you know, as was consistent with the time, you know, if something was happened and somebody was let go, nobody was really given therapy, or nobody was, you know, they, they did not alert the authorities, and in that way, it's similar to the Catholic Church. So they they try to uh, to handle it internally, like you know, this is an internal matter. But clearly, they weren't able to handle it internally. The problem was too large. Absolutely. And, um, you know, sadly, the guy who recruited me to go uh, to the school was uh, the headmaster slash baseball coach, uh, a guy by the name of Inky Clark, uh, a legendary and historical figure. He he changed Yale into a meritocracy. And um, so he was recruited to Arspan. And then, sadly, we found out that he was actually one of the abusers. So you had a guy at the top of the uh, the chain for a while. Now, they're going to, you know, Horace Mann talks about, like, oh, was, you know, Inky was running the place. The the issue preceded him, and it went on after he was no longer the headmaster. So it was, it was a lot bigger than Inky, but, you know, at the time he was there, uh, if somebody brought a complaint, whether it be a student or a teacher, and, and we have many instances of that, it wasn't going to go anywhere uh, because he was uh, at the top of the uh, pyramid. In your interviews and in your reporting, were you able to identify when this started? When was the tipping point for all of this? Right. So, in 1962 is when we had the first um, the first recorded uh, case of abuse. Um, now we know that this is a, a crime that is underreported. Um, the school turned co-ed in '75, and there was sort of a purge of teachers uh, that they thought, you know, were uh, had a pred- male teachers that had a predilection for boys. But what happened in 75 was when girls started uh, coming to the school, it almost became open season on them, and the numbers actually spike, and there's actually more girls being abused at Horace Mann uh, during uh, the 70s and 80s than boys. So, um, you know, it's sort of a a graph with with, uh, the early 80s being the the worst uh, period, the the most uh, prevalence of it. Talk about the girls there once it became co-ed. Yeah, I think um, you know the, the, it was an old boys uh, network. It was based on the the British uh, uh, schools, and um, so they didn't really know what to do with uh, with girls for a while. And uh, in '75, you know, they caught up. And Inky actually uh, made the school co-ed. He was a legendary reformer, as I said, and this was part of his reform. But as um, you know, as the girls uh, came uh, on board, they uh, they were targeted as well. So there was a driver's ed. Uh, um, teacher as well as an English teacher who was um, a pretty prolific uh, uh, abuser of young girls, and you know, starting with as young as like 13, 14. So, and uh, I actually have a piece in New York Magazine that's an excerpt from the book that uh, I went and visited uh, this one fellow up in Vermont. He's still alive, and it's sort of a harrowing look into the mind of uh, how somebody rationalizes what uh, what they've done in the past and denying and angry and. You know, trying to con me all at the same time and uh, blame the victim. And, you know, I waited till she was 17. She was the only one. You know, each one which turns out to be sort of patently false. Talk about that, the way so many of them have tried to justify it, particularly as you've written about making the argument that it somehow was, you had to understand the times. Right. In the... Um, in the wake of my piece in the Times, uh, the Times did a follow-up with a teacher who I knew had abused others. I just couldn't get anyone to go on record. And uh, a fellow by the name, he actually lives in California by the name of uh, Tech Lin. Uh, he lives in the Bay Area now. And he was a revered English teacher, and uh, he admitted to the Times 
that uh, he had uh, had sex with uh, with boys when he was there. And he said something along the lines of, yeah, it was, you know, it was a different time. It was all very uh, mutual, et cetera. And um, there was an, out, an outcry, both within the Horace Mann community and the broader national and international community, because the truth is it was never okay. Maybe the morals, the mores of the time, you know, people smoked and they drank and the, the sexual revolution was on. But it was never okay to, uh, you know, sleep with a 14-year-old boy uh, because they don't have uh, the ability to give consent. And I think sometimes um, I actually wrote a piece recently called That 70s Excuse, right? And, and people say, oh, it was a different time and everyone was doing quaaludes. First of all, not everybody was doing quaaludes. <laughs> and secondly, it was, you know, it was never okay. Uh, otherwise, you would have been talking about it openly, not, uh, not hiding it for decades. To what extent was this going on in similar prep schools in New York? What is your sense of that, and what did you hear? Um, I, I get asked that question a lot. There was definitely, look, there's always, and, and I wouldn't limit it to prep schools in New York. I would limit, I would say anywhere where you have adults uh, over, uh, over uh, students or kids, whether it be a camp or a Boy Scout situation or church, public, private schools, you know, you're going to have a certain... Uh, amount of the adult population, usually male, but not only, that's going to uh, try to exert their power in this way. Um, what's interesting about Horace Mann and what's shocking is the prevalence, the, the sheer numbers at Horace Mann, the, the fact that Horace Mann was an, uh, able to keep it secret for, for decades, and the shocking way in which they responded in the present when the revelations came forth, rather than uh, doing the two things that most victims want, which is acknowledgement and somebody from the institution to say sorry, Horace Mann took a real hardball position as if they were negotiating you know, a mergers and acquisitions deal rather than uh, you know, trying to heal those who had been hurt at the institution. Why did they do that? And what does it say about the, the very institution that allowed this to happen? Well, why they would do it, I mean, I'd love to hear the answer from men. They, they haven't talked to me for four years. They don't, uh, they don't genu generally speak to the press. Um, but um, I think that they're covering up, and they've never, um, they've never um, gone along with uh, the independent investigation that was funded by the alumni of the school. I think they're covering up. They know more than we know uh, now. And I think uh, there's still people hanging around at the institution and at the emeritus level that um, know where some of the bodies are buried, if you will. And I think that those uh, they're being protected, and um, they want to you know, sort of make it like it was all in the past. Um, but uh, they're playing hardball. These are the people that go on to run uh, Wall Street and run big law firms and control real estate in New York and around the world and media companies. You know, they're not used to um, to losing. They don't like to lose. So they, they, they treated this as a nuisance. Uh, and, um, you know, many of the uh, victims are my friends. And uh, before and now, you know, after I revealed this, and uh, it's just been horrible to watch as a sort of semi-insider and outsider at the same time. Uh, nobody feels uh, that the school has really, very few, feel that the school has done the right thing. Given the lo the laws in the state of New York, as you talked about earlier, they had kind of a unique opportunity to take the high road and not really have legal liability to go along with it. 
Right. As I said before, you have until the age of 23 to come forward, and if you're, uh, you know, sort of gives you a game plan to just sort of hide it, and then uh, you know you're out of luck. And so they had the ability to just say sorry uh, and, and move on, but some uh, that that's a real conundrum. Nobody really understands why they did that. Um, some have theorized that uh, it's because they they know that there's a lot more victims out there, and they wanted to play hardball just in, in case anybody was actually going to think about coming forward. You know, and an interesting thing happened in, in the mediation. One fellow uh, left mediation when he was offered, you know, peanuts, and he took his case across the river to the state of New Jersey, where he had also been abused, and he won millions of dollars for the same exact crime. So, um, you know, I think the school uh, is worried that there's a lot, many, many more victims out there, you know, I personally know of about uh, 10 to 12 victims who have not come forward for various reasons. Uh, and um, some theorize that this is part of their strategy. Play hardball, nobody else is going to come forward. Talk a little bit about the parents of the victims, both at the time and the ones that are still alive as you were reporting the story. Right. There's a, there's a, long, a wide range of uh, you know, parents. Um, many uh, did not know. Uh, it's not something that their kids told them at the time. Uh, some did know. Had this crazy case. I referred to it, the guy who took his uh, case across the, the river to New Jersey, where he told his parents uh, that he didn't want to uh, sleep in the same bedroom as uh, the, uh, the, the person who was abusing him on a, a, a trip to Europe. And the parents were, were surprised, shocked. Why? He's a great teacher. He loves you. And the teacher drove up and in front of the parents in their own living room, lobbied uh, them to say, why, why don't you, you know, screamed at the kid, you know, why don't you want to stay in the same room with me? Right? This is the level of how deeply conned they had been. They were sort of a part of the grooming process, right? So you have that level, uh, that's on one end of the spectrum. You know, on the other end, as I mentioned, you had people who just never told their parents uh, and are just now coming to terms with it their own selves and they're um, uh, telling their parents, uh, those who are still alive, as you suggested, yes, this, uh, I'm actually one of the victims. But it's always a very um, it's a complex thing to tell somebody. You know, people feel guilty. I should have told you. Why didn't you tell me? You know, and it's as nuanced as uh, the relationships uh, are uh, across the board. The corollary, of course, is how do parents send their kids there today? Yeah, you know, um, I talked to some uh, current parents. You know, I think the school's done a very good job of sort of putting this in the past or, or, or splitting the community from, oh, this terrible thing that happened in the past uh, against, you know, the school that we need to run today. Uh, many of the current parents, you know, uh, did not go to Horace Mann. They're spending a lot of money, and they don't really want this, uh, their school to be tarnished uh, by this scandal. But, um, you know, many of them, you can imagine I'm not a very popular guy uh, <laughs> at the school today. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think that the only way through this, you know, the only way through the fire is to go through the fire. If they would have done the right things, nobody would have been talking about Horace Mann. And I probably wouldn't have written the book, to be quite frank. Um, it was when they took this hardball approach after my article and during that I decided, you know, there's a, a lot more to tell here. And part of it is the way that you treat uh, 
the adult victims that were hurt under your care. And many of the it's not like the current students don't see this and uh, they, they get the lessons. Like you know, we're, they're they're aware. And every other week or so, there seems to be another article about Horace Mann. So, but they've taken a very protective, you know, that was then, this is now uh, approach, and it's been very calculated. The other part of it, of course, is how the prestigious universities and colleges where many of these kids go or want to go are looking at students coming out of Horace Mann today. Absolutely. I mean, I get cranky letters from, you know, current uh, college students like, why, you know, how dare you have exposed this? I, I used to love Horace Mann, and you know, everywhere I go, people sort of snicker at this point. And, you know, I felt the same way. I, I loved my three years there. I did not leave there, uh, you know, scarred. I was not abused. I, I loved it. And I was under the impression that it was a different place. You know, the, the name of the book, Great is the Truth, is the motto of the school. And many of us believed it and um, are just mortified by the way uh, this school that we loved has, has responded to, to this scandal. And, you know, the real question for me is, well, how does Horace Mann still, to this day, wind up as, you know, top 10 Forbes uh, list of schools in the country? Uh, what, are, what are the criteria that Forbes is using for that? Because, uh, you know, I, I don't see it. I, I wouldn't, uh, personally, wouldn't send my kid there. What do you think the future of the school is? I think it's going to be fine. I think uh, they, they will survive. I think... Uh, they, they have really worked very hard on the PR front to uh, make, you know, this is all a couple of bad apples in the past and disgruntled uh, writers and people like that. And that's the narrative. And, you know, as long as there's people that are going to buy it and as long as you're going to continue to get my kid into Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, I don't think much is going to change. Amos Badly. Camille, his book is Great is the Truth, Secrecy, Scandal, and the Quest for Justice at the Horace Mann School. I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you.